So we're starting a series on 1 and 2 Kings, which is uh, it's on page 338 of your Bibles, I think. Um, and today, just to be ambitious, we're covering the 300 or so pages before it. Isn't that good? Um, seriously, um, as you read your Bible in the Old Testament, seeing the big picture of what, what's going on and what God's promises are and how uh, Israel's doing in, in following God is uh, really orientating and, and a lot of the meaning of the Old Testament's in the big picture. Um, we're studying 1 and 2 Kings, history books. Might sound boring to you, history, right? Uh, here's why 1 and 2 Kings are important, because I'm a monarchist. I'm a proud monarchist, and if you're a Christian, you're a monarchist too. I'm not talking about the throne of England. Frankly, I don't care if we're a republic, or you can tell me afterwards whether you care about that or not. It's called Christianity. Christ means king. It means Messiah. It means king. Kingianity is what it means to be a Christian. You're a follower of the king. That's why the book of Kings is important. It's the foundation for the fact that Jesus is the king, the Christ. He's the king we serve, the kingdom of God, the king of Israel, the Messiah, all those things. It's part of the foundation of that. That's why it's really important what we're looking at uh, over the next few weeks. Um, you might think, Kings, right, it's, it's history books, it's really boring. I just want to tell you a few things about Kings as we, we get into it. It's actually not the sort of uh, dry recitation of facts from history. Let me tell you some things about the book of Kings. Uh, first thing I want to tell you, it's really, really short. It is a short history. It is, in my Bible, it is 65 pages long. I've got two... Um, histories of World War II at my feet. They both go for over 700 pages, and that's for six years. One, two kings goes for 600 years. It's a really, really short history. In fact, if you go from Exodus to two kings, the bit we're going to do today, that's one continuous history of Israel, and it goes for 350 pages. It's not even that long. It's a really short, selective history of Israel. The other things I want to tell you, it's selective, and it's really, really biased. See, all history is biased, Historians choose the bits that they like. Well, not that they like. They have a rationale for what they choose to include and not include. So my two histories of World War II that I own, this one's by Max Hastings. Max Hastings' biases in this book is he wants to give you a popular level uh, history of World War II, give you anecdotes about how it affected people on the ground, not the warlord level history, if you follow me. Gordon Corrigan's written a very different history. Uh, The Second World War, a military history. So he's interested exactly in warlords and troop movements and all that kind of thing. They're very different histories. They've chosen what they think is important to tell that kind of story. But they're both true. Uh, but but they've, they've chosen which bits they think are important for their history. Now, one and two kings is a history, and they've selected stuff to keep in and to throw out the other stuff that doesn't matter. So they don't care. The King Omri was an awesome king with, uh, who made negotiations with foreign powers and marriage and trade ties. The only thing kings cares about with King Omri... He disobeyed God and did more evil in the eyes of God than any other king before him. That's the kind of bias. Now, two things about the, 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 the way one or two kings has chosen what to include and not include. It's part of the former prophets, right? Um, the former prophets is the traditional Jewish um, title for the books from Joshua through to two kings. If you look at the table of contents of your Bible, it might help you get it orientated here. Um, so it's the books of uh, Joshua, Judges. Not really Ruth, but anyway, one and two Samuel and one and two Kings. That's called the former prophets because it's like a prophet preaching history to you. He doesn't want to just tell you the dry facts. He wants to shout the history of Israel at you and say, see, look what happens when people obey God and disobey God. Look at the price of either faith or not believing in God's promises. Look at the price of obeying God or not obeying God. The second title people give to it, get more specific, is the Deuteronomy... 
Deuteronomic mystic history. I'm not going to even try to say that again. The book of Deuteronomy really informs what's going on here. Over and over again, the way it's written refers back to the book of Deuteronomy. We just had two passages from Deuteronomy read because that is the key to understanding what one and two kings are on about. Deuteronomy is a book, it's uh, actually three sermons given by Moses to Israel before they enter the promised land and it's the basis and measure of everything that goes on afterwards. Moses says, obey God, keep the covenant Uh, and and we heard some details of that uh, in our readings. So if if you're reading uh, our reading plan, you've been reading Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, you're going, what on earth is this story about? Why is it included here? Is this a good example or a bad example? Read Deuteronomy, that's always the answer. The key to judging what comes afterwards is the book of Deuteronomy. That's the standard God gave, uh, and it's the standard that the former prophets keep pointing back to. Now, let's have a quick look at the the bits of Deuteronomy that we heard today. Here's the things we need to look for, mainly, in the books books that follow Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy 30, I'll read from verse 15. Things you need to realise... There's two ways that Israel can live. One way is life, one way is death, one way is blessing, one way is curse. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you're entering to possess. But if you turn away and you are not obedient, if you're drawn away to bow to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. There's a way of life, there's a way of death. Israel, whatever you do, obey your God. That's what Moses says. And you'll hear that reiterated over and over and over as we go through the book. But we're reading the book of Kings, and Deuteronomy actually sets out the terms that Israel can appoint kings, back in chapter 17, which we just had read to us. There's actually two figures that I want you to look for as we go through the book of Kings. They are the king and the prophet, uh, in case you're wondering, the Lord of the Rings was heavily influenced by one or two kings, so there will be lots of illustrations from Lord of the Rings. Believe me. Sorry, Joy. Chapter 17. When the king, uh, verse 18, when he takes the throne of the kingdom, the king is to write for himself a scroll, a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. He's to copy it. It's to be with him and he's to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Three points. First of all, it's exactly the same as Israel, isn't it? King of Israel, follow God or it will go badly for you. You'll go to the way of cursing if you turn away from your, your God. Secondly, he's to read the law of God all the time. He needs to be obedient to God for the good of the nation. The king has to read it. He has to make a copy of it. And thirdly, it means the king of Israel isn't actually the king of Israel. God is. most basic thing about Israel's faith, God is king. And the king of Israel is kind of an under-king. He serves the king. Diagram helps. We've got a prophet as well. The prophet is the voice of God. He speaks God's word and he is above the king because God is king and the prophet speaks the words of the king. And that means the king had better listen to the prophet and he better listen to God's law because he isn't king, he's serving the king. And the prophet will call the king to account. There's this, this wonderful story about King James the, the sixth that kind of gets the point across. Um, king James the sixth went to church as everybody did in the 16th century but he was very, very rude and spoke all the way during the sermon. 
Uh, one day, Robert Bruce was preaching. Every time Bruce spoke, James would chat away. Bruce would pause, and the king would pause too. Finally, Bruce got sick of it. He turned to the king, and he said, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. He's got it right. The prophet speaks down to the king with the voice of God. And so you can expect there to be some tensions between kings and prophets as we go through one and two kings. Believe me, look out for it. Now, I'm going to take you through the story of Israel from Genesis to Kings uh, in what I'm going to break up into nine chapters because it kind of fits the logic of it. Uh, You can flick through with your Bible if you'd like. I think it might help you to get orientated. Chapter 1, Kingship in Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created a race of kings and queens. Us, under, to live under his rule. Genesis 1.26, it talks about how God created monarchs. 1.26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over everything under God. They're kings. Second clue is, they're in God's image. We're in God's image. Do you know what that means? In the ancient world, kings would put statues of themselves everywhere to show who's in charge of that territory. God's plan is, human beings, you are in my image. You represent my rule on the earth. Spread, fill the earth, and represent my rule there by obeying me. And that's the basic pattern we see in in, in creation. The under-king, under God the king, is what human beings are to be. Of course, everybody turns away from God, rejects his rule, and tries to do the king thing on our own. And our kingship in our experience is a very sinister thing often. Uh, kings just grab power, people grab it at the, cr- at the crown and they use their power very selfishly and it's evidence of the fact we are cut off from the kingship of God. Chapter 2, Abraham's line of kings, the father, Abraham the father of kings. Abraham was this really ordinary guy, a nomad really, and he wandered around with his family and one day out of the blue God spoke to him and gave him promises which were extraordinary and are actually the basis for everything that follows in the Bible. Turn to Genesis 12, if you've got a Bible there. This is like a use-your-highlighter type of passage. It's that important. Um, Genesis chapter 12, and let's listen to what happened with Abraham. (coughs) The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. That's the land of Canaan. There I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is one of the really important parts. He's Abraham. He's promised, remember it with lob, that's how I remember it. He's promised land, offspring, blessings. Blessings both for himself and eventually blessings to the entire world. This is the source of blessing to the whole world. This is the place, Abraham and his family, that God will uh, re-establish his kingship over everything. Turn to chapter 17, and we start getting hints of it really quickly. Chapter 17, if you've got your Bible, verse 6. God keeps telling Abraham his promises and giving some different aspects of it. 17 verse 6, God says to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. We're starting to get this kingship thing coming through. Abraham's family, for the rest of Genesis, inherit his promises, so it goes to uh, Isaac, for some reason the beard length gets shorter each generation, goes to Jacob. Jacob is known as Israel. He's the father of all Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons who are fairly famous, and they all look alike, except for the annoying one. Joseph, who is very colourful, and that annoys them. 
Um, and they're the names of the tribes of Israel. They're the fathers of the tribes of Israel. Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Judah, Dan, Gad, Nephtali, Asher, Zebulun, Benjamin, Issachar, and Joseph actually has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, who are the names of two further tribes. There's actually 13 tribes of Israel. Um, Levi doesn't count. He looks after the tabernacle. Uh, he's, he's the priest tribe. Interestingly, Joseph annoyed his brothers by saying he's going to rule them. <laughs> and so they get annoyed. They sell him into slavery, and he heads off into Egypt. He ends up becoming second in charge in Egypt to talk about ruling, and the family follows him there. And the book of Genesis ends with Abraham's family awaiting uh, the promises of God to be fulfilled, but they're in Egypt now, and they're there for several hundred years. Chapter 3, God's kingdom, Israel. Friends, by the time we get to the book of Exodus, several hundred years have passed. There's no longer a family we're talking about. It's a very, very, very big family. Uh, It's a great nation, very, very big. Uh, God promised uh, to save them because they'd been made slaves of Pharaoh over that time. He'd forgotten all about who Joseph was. Um, So he raised up Moses the prophet who saved them out of Egypt, parted the Red Sea by God's power and led them to Mount Sinai to introduce them to their God. God said, I will be your God, you will be my people. At Sinai, Abraham's family officially became a nation. They're not a family anymore, they're a nation. He gave them, he told, introduced them to their king, God, by covenant. He gave them his law, and the law that Moses gave, the Ten Commandments and all the other stuff around it, became the constitution of Israel. They are now a nation under God. Well, that, that's got the wrong connotations these days, doesn't it? They are the nation under God. God is really their king. Some aspects of God's kingship that come out of, out of this period, because um, Exodus 19, Leviticus, and half of Numbers are all set at Mount Sinai. Here's a couple of key things that come out that talk about God's kingship over them. First of all, God's going to have a tent among them called the tabernacle. It's a symbol of his presence. This is, where, this is the king's tent in the midst of Israel. So whenever they um, camp, this is what Numbers 2 teaches, it's very precise. All the, the tribes of Israel will camp around the tent, the king's tent, and it looks like an invasion force. Uh, The king lives in the middle and his servants, his people, uh, dwell around him. Now, at the centre of the tabernacle is this thing called the Ark of the Covenant and it's gold and it's got angels on it and it's a symbol of God's throne. God is king. This is the symbol of his throne. The Ten Commandments are kept inside it and it symbolises that God is king. This is his command. Follow him, obey him. And so the Ark and the Tabernacle were carried and maintained by the tribe of Levi And whenever Israel travelled, the Ark of the Covenant led the way, the King of Israel leading his people onward. The Ark of the Covenant shows uh, God is the King of Israel leading his people into battle and to their land that he promised their father Abraham. So they set out the tabernacle. Every time the cloud goes down, they camp. Every time it goes up, they they pack up and follow. They get to the edge of the promised land called Kadesh Barnea in, in Numbers 13 to 14, and they rebel. They look at the promised land, they send some spies in there, and they just go, wow, these guys are really fearsome. They are full of, there's mighty nations all through the promised land, and humanly speaking, they will squash us, and they don't trust God to save them. And God promises them, well, this generation will not enter my promised land, the next generation will. So they spend 40 years walking around the desert until that generation of adults all dies out. Then Moses gets them, the next generation, to the plains of Moab, the edge of the promised land, just across the Jordan, and he preaches those really important sermons from Deuteronomy. Over and over again, remember, God rescued you. Obey him and you'll be blessed. Disobey him and you'll be cursed. Do not turn from him. Whatever you do, don't turn from him. Chapter 4, Joshua and Conquest. 
Moses died. Must have been shocking for him. I mean, they, they, he was the leader of Israel their whole lives. Uh, they came through the plains of Moab. They came to the edge of the Jordan River, and the Ark of the Covenant led them through. If you've got your Bible there, turn to uh, Joshua, uh, chapter 1. Deuteronomy is the standard of everything in these books. Have a look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. It says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. That's Deuteronomy. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, so you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. Fill your mind with it. Fill your heart with it. So you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. The size and the fearsomeness of Israel's enemies was irrelevant. All they had to do was obey God and they would receive the land. At um, Joshua 3 to 4, the Ark of the Covenant walks into the Jordan River. The Jordan River, it's flood season. The thing is four kilometres wide to start with. Flood season, it's wider. It is raging. The priests carry the Ark of the Covenant in. The river just stops and the nation walks through into the promised land. They know Joshua is their new leader. They enter the land and they come to Gilgal and they set up camp, which becomes basically their invasion uh, point for the promised land and God is going to conquer the land for them. Now for the first time, they they ate manna in the desert that God gave them. Uh, The manna stops now, their ships are burnt, uh, the sea has gone back together. (laughs) There's no escape. They need to follow God and live in the land, or else die in the land by not following God. And Israel comes to the uh, city of Jericho. Now, as you read the book of Joshua, and Judges especially, you will be shocked and offended. Because God's command to Israel is to utterly wipe out the inhabitants of Canaan. There's actually two commands, drive them out and utterly destroy them. And it seems to be basically when you invade, whoever hasn't already fled, kill them. Don't, don't leave survivors. So with ISIS in that part of the world or near enough at the moment, you sort of go, is, is God commanding them to be terrorists or something? And some people have actually said, well, actually, this isn't reflecting God's will at all. Uh, they're just barbarians and it's the best God could kind of do with Israel and, and, and it's not really what God wants at all. But if you read it, Israel keeps letting the people live. They keep compromising. It's God who keeps insisting that the inhabitants of the land be destroyed and totally um, driven out, not Israel. Israel's failure is they keep stopped doing that. Now, let me give give you three points on this. There's more to it, but it's important. Um, Things to remember, this is God's war of judgment on an evil people. It's not Israel's war. Israel's merely merely God's instrument of judgment. In Joshua 5, just before they get to Jericho, Joshua meets this terrifying angelic figure called the commander of the Lord's army. And it's kind of ominous. Because it seems that God will drive out the nations before them. But as Deuteronomy warns, if they turn away from God, God will drive them out and destroy them. It's God's war. God will defeat these people. Second thing I want to say is the inhabitants of the land really were evil. And God declared that their time of judgment had come. The comparison to ISIS is a good one because the people of the land um, sacrificed their children. I mean, they were wicked. They were really evil. And God had held off for generations and decided now is the time for this exceptionally cruel and barbaric society to be destroyed. And surprisingly, they were going to be destroyed by these blundering ex-slaves wandering through the desert who had very unimpressive military strength because God was going to do it. But they really were evil. 
And if you read about them, you start getting a sense of why it was right for God to destroy those societies. But more so bring than that, thirdly, friends, the judgment of Canaan foreshadows the judgment of the whole world. Because the former prophets is about God establishing his kingship in his chosen land, and that means destroying opposing kings and political regimes, claiming their territory and eliminating all traces of their idolatry and sin. It foreshadows the day of judgment when God will demand all his enemies' territory, all of creation, as the inheritance of his son, the King Jesus. That's what it foreshadows. And the people on that day will either be subjects of that king and belong in his territory, or they'll face his fearsome judgment. The conquest of Canaan really should teach us to fear God. It should teach us what's the stake here. Israel marched around the city of Jericho for six days. They didn't do anything, so walk around it. The Ark of the Lord in front of them. Seventh day, the walls just collapsed and Israel completely destroyed the city. Chapters 8 to 12 of Joshua tell about how they conquered all the the cities around. They went south first and they went through and nobody could stop them. Get to chapter 11 and the kings of the north put together this ginormous army. It's quite ridiculous, really. It talks about uh, troops, chariots and horses like the sand on the seashore. They'd never seen an army like it in the land. And by the end of the chapter, Israel had won. They had defeated the kings of the north and they'd conquered the land. Chapter 12 of Joshua gives a list of kings, and they're all defeated. There's a big power vacuum in this land. All these people that previously terrified them are gone. There's tribes everywhere here and there, but there's a power vacuum. Uh, Israel's going to fill it with devotion to God the king. And so Israel settles down. Now, as you read chapters 13 to 21, it's all about geography and land divisions. And you think, wow, that's boring. No, it's not boring. You've bought a house before, a lot of you. Do you think the division of your land and what's on it is boring? This is the really exciting bit. God promised this land to his people Israel and now they're possessing it. And so they divide it up like, like it is on the map there. That's what's outlined in those chapters of Joshua. Um, you get to the end of the book. Joshua is now an old man. And guess what he puts before them? Chapter 23. He does another three sermons just like Moses did. Chapter 23. And he says to them, verse 6. Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or the left. Don't associate with those nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down before them, but you ought to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. Can you hear the desperation in Joshua's voice? Life and death. Obey God, people. That's how we're going to last. That's how we're going to be the people who bless the world and introduce the world to our God. Of course, there's enemies all around in the promised land at the book of Joshua. Here they are. They haven't driven everybody out because they're supposed to keep conquering as the nation grows, but they've also compromised and let some people in the middle there continue. Canaanites, Hivites, Philistines in particular, Hittites, Jebusites. These people are going to be a pain in the neck later on. Israel's going to need to trust God their king as much as any other time because you take away God's power and what is Israel? Israel is a tiny, puny tribal nation trying to hold on to a hotly contested piece of land. Joshua says, follow your God. Chapter 5, Judges and Chaos. Now this, Judges is not a nice book. (laughs) Uh, It's not a nice book because Judges is about how Israel forgets all about what Deuteronomy teaches and they descend into utter chaos and ruin. 
They forget what God said in Deuteronomy. They forget Joshua. It starts out okay. Israel asks God, who should lead us into battle after Joshua's death? And God answers Judah. I mean, that's the, that's the king tribe after all. Judah will go up. I've given the land into their hands. But Judges 1 lists all the ways that Israel compromises in their conquering of the land. And then God sends an angel and says, you've refused to obey me. And coming days are going to be really awful for you because of that. Now, if you've studied the book of Joshua before, you might have seen like a spiral thing, a circle that goes over and over again in the book of Joshua. Basically, what happens is the people rebel against God, and so God gives them over into the hands of the peoples of the land who they fail to to conquer. Israel cry out for deliverance from the, the, the heavy slavery they're under, and God answers them and sends them a judge. Now, a judge is basically a leader. General pattern is um, God gives his spirit to the, to the judge, and the judge then deliver Israel from their enemies and lead the people for a period of time. And during that time, there was a period of peace in the land for 20 years, 40 years, however long the, the judge lived. And then the judge would die, people would turn into rebellion and adultery, and it would go around and around. And it goes around and around from chapters 2 to 16. Lots and lots of judges. It's actually not just a spiral, though. A, a, a cycle, though, it's actually a spiral, a downward spiral. See, as you go through the book, the unity of Israel completely disintegrates until they regard each other as enemies. There's 13 or so judges. After the fifth judge, there's no more peace in the land ever recorded in the book of Judges. And the judges themselves seem to get worse. The first one's really good, and then you end up with Samson crying out loud. Samson is terrible. He's been called the Shane Warne of the judges. You know, like he's a brilliant performer, but his personal life is shocking. You, you, get, you get the point. And then from chapter 17 onwards, there's no more judges and Israel doesn't even bother calling out to God for help anymore. They're doing it themselves. In the middle of the book, they try and make one of the judges, Gideon, into their king. Gideon's answer is brilliant. He says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. God will rule over you. That's their identity. God's their king. But they don't listen. Gideon's son, Abimelech, becomes king, actually, and he kills all his siblings to do it. And it's a disaster and he doesn't last long, but it's just utter chaos. And the end of the book ends with two stories that show you just how bad Israel's gotten. And there's a phrase that keeps coming, a line that keeps coming up. Here's the line. In those days, Israel had no king. First story, religious chaos. In those days, Israel had no king. A guy called Micah buys off a Levite priest to make a private shrine for his idols in his house. The household of Dan, the tribe of Dan hears about it. They go and say, hey, we'll take your, your, your um, idols, we'll take your priest, and we'll make it the official religion of the tribe of Dan. You've got tribes of Israel who have so forgotten the God who actually saved them from slavery that they're fighting over fake little statue gods. It's utter stupidity. They're just like the tribes around them. The second story, though, in chapters 19 to 20, is very shocking, and I won't tell it to you today. It basically tells you about how the tribe of Benjamin, and particularly their city of Gibeah, has become just like Sodom from Genesis 19. Israel hears about the shocking things that happened there, And they get united for the first time in the book. Only they aren't united against Canaanites or Midianites or Philistines to capture the land under God. They are united in practically annihilating the tribe of Benjamin. And they almost succeed. The book ends. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. They had no king because they didn't know their God. Israel's just like the nations around them. They truly become a kingdom with a king-shaped hole in it. That's the title of our series. Now, don't forget about the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth comes after Joshua, uh, Judges. Sorry, um, It's about a little family that God's preserving. The importance of it's right at the end. Uh, it's about Ruth and Boaz. 
their great-grandson that's preserved by God's sovereignty is named David. And it's going to be very, very uh, important later on. But basically, while all this chaos is going on, God is preserving his promises, making sure it will come good in the end. Chapter 6, the rise of King Saul and the rejection of God as king. 1 Samuel gets worse before it gets better. Um, This is Shiloh. It becomes a significant center for Israel because the Ark of the Covenant's there. I mean, it's the Ark of the Covenant, the kingship of God. uh, Shiloh's the center of the place. Now, the latest judges of Israel were Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. um, They're priests and they're absolutely horribly corrupt. Uh, And Eli, their father, is too weak-willed to intervene. There's more bad news in chapter 3. It basically says there hasn't been prophecy in Israel for a long time. No prophet's spoken from God to Israel for a long time. They're just distant from God. And it gets worse. <laughs> in chapters 4 to 6, Israel goes to war with the Philistines. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas go, hey, hey, we've got this magic box called the Ark of the Covenant. Let's get it to take into battle and it will win the day for us. I and mean, they haven't forgotten there's a God that it symbolizes. They don't trust him. But they take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. They lose. In fact, those two guys die. And the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's kingship, is captured by the Philistines and taken to their city of Ashdod, where they put it in their temple. And it's like kingship has completely left Israel forever. It's a heartbreaking symbol of how far Israel has gotten from their God, that God's Ark is in exile from the land. Now, we just made fun of idols of Micah that could be stolen uh, in, in, in the end of Judges. You go, well, the Ark of the Covenant got stolen. Is God real or not? While it was in Ashdod, uh, they put it in the, the temple of their god Dagon, and Dagon, the statue, kept falling down in front of it. Second time it fell down, the head of the statue fell off. The Philistines, because of all the horrible stuff going on, because this ark's here, actually return it to Israel. Um, Israel doesn't make much of it, though. It ends up in a place called Kiriath-Jerim, uh, and it is left there for 20 years. Israel doesn't care. There's no king in Israel. But God has plans. Alongside this corrupt Eli's household and the loss of the ark, he's raised up the best judge and prophet since Moses. He's named Samuel, Samuel, and he is an exceptional judge, as you'd read from 1 Samuel 7 if you read that. But when he gets old, he appoints his sons as judges, and tragically, Samuel's sons lead as corruptly as Eli's sons had, and Israel does what mobs do best. They turn uh, public outrage into completely mindless political action. At Ramah, this place here, they demand a king. Turn to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. It's really important for what we're talking about today. They they say, Samuel, your sons are really, really bad leaders. We don't want them to be leaders. Listen to their logic. It's it's extraordinary. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. It says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you're old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Oh my goodness. <laughs> the level of stupidity going on here. Samuel, you're a really good leader, but your sons you appointed after you are terrible leaders. So here's the solution. We should put in a political system in order where kingship is always passed down to sons, no matter how bad they are. You see how foolish these people are they're just not thinking through but the worst thing about it well there's worse as well they haven't remembered Abimelech son of Gideon the only king they've ever had who was a disaster but they say like the nations around us the whole point of Israel is to not be like the nations around them they're going to be God's kingdom they're going to introduce to the world who God is and have God as king have a look what Samuel says verse 7 the Lord told Samuel listen to all that the people are saying to you It is not you they've rejected, 
but they have rejected me as their king. As they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel warns the people about what a king will do, and God says, well, they, they want it, so let's give them the kind of king they want. They point a man called, uh, Samuel points a man called Saul. He's a really impressive Benjaminite. Uh, he's a head taller than anyone else. Basically, he's this massive giant of a man who's really impressive. He looks the part. And they make him king. Samuel puts all the duties of kingship from Deuteronomy 17 in front of him. And people say, yeah, he's a king. And he goes off and he conquers and he seems really, really great. But Samuel just keeps reminding them, you've done such a wicked thing to reject God as your king. See, the point isn't that having a human king is bad. The point is, you trade in a human king for the living God, your king. That is the most foolish and wicked thing that Israel had done to that point. It's off to a really bad start, but it's worth pausing and saying, Saul is actually the first example of what you call a Christ or a Messiah, the anointed king of Israel. That means he's utterly sacred in God's sight and you mustn't dare harm him and you mustn't dare not follow him if you're one of God's people. The people got the king they wanted because Samuel failed. Chapter 13, he engages in his own sacrifice practices and Samuel the prophet comes and talks down to the king saying, God says, now your kingdom will not endure. In chapter 15, Saul the king failed to obey God in destroying the Amalekites. So Samuel the prophet confronts him again and says, because you have rejected God's word, now God has rejected you as king. He will give your crown to another. Chapter 7. The rise of King David, the son and servant of God the king. God leads Samuel, who's pretty broken up by all this, uh, to a little boy, basically, called David. He's from a town called Bethlehem. This is just dripping with being an image of Jesus. Uh, He's from the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe of God's choice for king. Uh, He's a child, but he's a a child who loves God and who trusts God and who wants to serve God. Immediately he establishes himself, even as a boy, as the greatest judge Israel has ever seen. See, Saul was impressive to Israel because he's really tall. He's a giant. He wins his battles because he's big and impressive. The thing about putting your trust in a giant instead of God is you're safe until the other side has a bigger giant, right? The next time they go to war, the Philistines have a bigger giant. Goliath takes the field, and the giant of Israel, Saul, the big tall guy, hides in his tent. We keep seeing God defeat the Philistines without his faithless people's help. In chapter earlier, earlier on, the Ark of the Covenant knocked off the head of the Philistines' god Dagon and broke its head, knocked it over and broke its head off. Now this child, David, challenges the Philistine champion, knocks him over with a rocket from a sling and chops Goliath's head off with his own sword. You see, God doesn't need help to win the battles. He just needs his people to faithfully trust him and serve him. David's success and fame grows. He's been anointed the next king of Israel by Samuel. And so Saul spends the rest of one Samuel pursuing David all around the countryside trying to kill him instead of doing his job protecting the borders of Israel as king. Twice David had a chance to kill Saul, but he refused. It was unthinkable to kill God's Messiah, the one that God had chosen. If God wants him gone, he'll get rid of him. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 2, you hear the first sermon preached uh, by Peter to to, uh, first Christian sermon. In that sermon, he says, Jesus is the Messiah, and you guys all murdered him. And the crowd wets their pants, because they know what that means, right? The king, the Messiah, is absolutely sacred in God's sight. 
Well, eventually, in God's timing, Saul does die. And the four, first four chapters of 2 Samuel are about David gaining his throne. But chapter 5 of 2 Samuel is the really exciting one. And I think if you're doing our reading program, it comes up tomorrow, I think. It's really exciting. Because for the first time, if you look at the map, we have a united Israel. David becomes king of everybody. And the nation's properly united for the first time since Joshua died. They can get on with their job of being united, doing God's will. Now, the Jebusites, this is in chapter 5 still, had long been a nuisance to Israel. There they are on the map. David conquers them and conquers their main city called Jerusalem and makes it his capital there in the, the area of Judah. And here's the best part, though. It gets better and better. Remember the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's rule that's at Kiriath-Jerim? Everybody's forgotten about it except David. David goes and collects the Ark and leads it to Jerusalem, dressed up as a slave, dancing before it like a moron. (laughs) See, he's understood. God is the king of Israel. He will rule Israel. And the Messiah is just the king's servant. He's just the king's slave. He's just there to do the king's will. But here's the even better part. It gets better better still. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Again, if you're going to highlight a part of the Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7, highlight. It's like on par with the promises to Abraham, basically. Here's what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David looks around. He says to Nathan the prophet, you know what? This doesn't seem right. I'm living in a fancy palace in Jerusalem, and the ark of God, my king, still lives in a tent like it did in the wilderness. That, that ain't right. Let's do something about that. I'm going to build God a temple a big palace to show he's the king and I've got a little palace that shows that I'm, I'm the under king. God's response is just extraordinary. There's a play on words with house. Basically, God says to him, hey, David, do you think you're going to build me a house? As in a temple. David, I'm going to build you a house as in a dynasty that will never end. And you read 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you can hardly believe what he's promising to this guy. The promises to Abraham to bless the whole world are now king-centered promises. David will rule the whole world, or his descendant will, and the kingship of Israel will never be taken away from his line like it was from Saul. When David's uh, sons sin, God will discipline them, but he won't reject them. And you know why? Because today, God has adopted the king of Israel as his son. From now on, to be the king of Israel is to be known as the son of God. David's blown away by this. He actually wrote a song about it, Psalm chapter 2. You listen to the confidence he has in God's purposes now. Um, It says, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one, the Messiah, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off the shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes at them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king, my Messiah, on Zion, my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. I will proclaim the Lord's decree, said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. You see that there? The king of Israel will rule the world, is what he's saying. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, the king of Israel. Or he will be angry and your way, your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You better listen to the king of Israel now. <laughs> He's the son of God. He's going to be the king of the whole world. David amassed victory after victory and he expanded the borders of Israel massively and he ruled his people justly. But we come to chapter 8. The fall and preservation of King David when time for war came, 
with the Philistines, David sent Israel off to fight without him. He lazed about in the palace instead and had an affair with a woman called Bathsheba. When she got pregnant, he basically set it up so her husband would be placed in harm's way in the war that he hadn't bothered turning up to. It's a stunning fall for such a great man. David got away with it until, as always happens, Nathan, the prophet of God, confronted David with exactly what he'd done and exactly what God would do about it. He repents wholeheartedly, but David's reign is never again the same. Um, One of the sad compromises of David's reign, against what Deuteronomy 17 says, is he took lots of wives and he took lots of concubines, which meant he had lots of children with lots of different women and he didn't manage their relationships well. (laughs) Believe me. There's a horrible story in the next chapter where one of David's sons, Amnon, uh, rapes his half-sister Tamar. David's angry about it, but he doesn't intervene to bring Amnon to justice. And so Tamar's brother, Absalom, plots his revenge and kills Amnon two years later. And then Amnon organises a coup, takes Jerusalem, and King David, David flees out of the city. It's just disaster. It's just chaos. How did this happen to King David, of all people? Eventually Absalom's killed and David returns to Jerusalem, but the rest of David's reign is troubled by his failings. Though God preserves him, he doesn't lose the throne, but it isn't pretty for the rest of his reign. Chapter 9, and we are up to 1 Kings, where we're going to spend the rest of our series. We find an elderly King David in his palace. We find a household, his household, all plotting for the throne when he dies, because he's going to die soon. He's not an impressive man anymore, but he's a man with the promise of God, and his descendant would rule the earth. He names Solomon his successor, and he has it publicly proclaimed. Then the old man takes Solomon, his son, aside and gives the best advice a father can give his son. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. I hope you know what David's going to say to him. Do you know what David is going to say to his son? It's come up time and time again as we've read the latter prophets. 1 Kings chapter 2, it's on page 331. Here's what he said from verse 2. I'm about to go the way of all the, uh, of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Act like a man. And observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Every phrase is from Deuteronomy because David had spent his life reading it, observing it, treasuring it and seeking to honour his God. And so he says, Solomon, whatever you do, be the king of Deuteronomy 17. There's nothing more important in the world. And only by being that king will Israel come to bless the whole world. We'll hear about Solomon and his sons in the coming series, and we'll learn a whole lot more about the Messiah. Let me say again, as you've seen, monarchy is the only political system that works. Of course, you need the right king on the throne. Monarchy is the only uh, political system that will last because the promise has been made to the line of David, you will have a success from the throne forever and your son will rule the whole world as God's under king. He will rule the whole world. I hope you know that Messiah's name's Jesus. We're going to learn a whole lot more about him as we go forward. How about I pray and thank God for saving people from their sin because we've heard about a whole lot of it.
our loving Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you as the judge of the whole earth who brings sin to account at one time or another, if not now, on the day of judgment. We want to thank you that you have seen fit to appoint a king, your son, Jesus, your actual eternal son, to be the son of God, the king of Israel, who will rule the whole earth. We want to thank you that he has overcome sin, as we've heard so much about it uh, in these books that we've just had a quick overview of now. Uh, We acknowledge, Father, that sin is everywhere, that we are slaves to it so often. We want to thank you for the rescue that Jesus offers uh, from sin. And we want to thank you that his reign is a good reign and will be a good reign in the age to come. Please help us to hold fast to your word, as you have said over and over again in every generation. Please bless us as we, uh, as we obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.